Okay, today's scripture reading comes from Colossians. So if you can flip to page 983 in the Red Pew Bibles. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the, lo- of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of, understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we get started. God, thank you so much for even just the opportunity to be here and um, to love, to serve, to care for communities that are um, in need of things because of just all the inequity that we have in our world. Um, we are so, so imperfect, and we'll, we're going to discover this as we're studying Colossians, that um, this is a church that had the spirit of love in them, but as we'll read throughout the series, that they were indeed imperfect. And so are we. we. We're so imperfect, and we try to do different things, but we are in need of being led by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be looking at this ancient letter that was written to Christians who lived in Colossae. It was written in the mid-first century. Now, there are some folks who think that the the Bible is just this ancient text, and it's archaic, it's irrelevant, and so why even bother reading it today? Um, I would say that most of you here do not believe that. Otherwise, you wouldn't go to church here. You'd go to some other church. But the thought is... Not necessarily in here, but it's all around us. So in our study of the Bible, we do find truth, and we do find teachings that are purposeful, relevant, and quite frankly, they just work. And we find wisdom that is timeless, and all one has to do is invest some time into studying the scriptures with an open mind, and you'll find this to be true. So over these next four chapters in the book of Colossians, we'll be taking a look at Jesus Christ as the source of our Christian faith and and of a follower's life. We'll be taking a look at Jesus as the head of our church, as the head of the church. And the hope is for us to be further grounded in the scriptures, for the word of God to guide our thinking, our actions, our reasoning, everything about us. I don't have to tell you this, but our world is divided. There is division all around us. We have this sense of division, whether we're looking at things globally or just in our country in our city, unfortunately, even in our church. 
and you experience this even in your relationships, whether it's in your family and your friendships. And we're, we're finding that there's a divide amongst people because there's a disagreement between what we believe to be true and what someone else believes to be true. So how do we define truth? Because if it's truth, it shouldn't kind of be opposite. Well, in our world, we tend to define truth by what works. So if something works, then that thing must be true. That's kind of how we think of it that way, right? So, or, or if it's true, then it must work. Otherwise, it's not true. But is that really a true statement? So to an extent, yes. Right? To an extent, yes. So scientifically, yes. If it doesn't work, then it's probably not true. And if it works, then it probably is true. So scientifically, technically, that is probably true. So within pragmatic things, yes. But this is also a very binary way of thinking, and it lacks a lot of depth when we throw something into it that's more complex, say, like relationships. So Jesus died for you and me 2,000 years ago. He said it himself. The entire Bible speaks of it. We have prophets that speak to this. We have eyewitnesses that speak to this. And so it's a truth that he declared himself and his followers declared. And for all intents and purposes, it, it works. So thousands of years have passed. Christianity is still thriving. Yes, it's slowing down in Europe. Yes, it's slowing down in North America. But it is exploding in Asia. It is exploding in South America. It is exploding in Africa. So more Christians in the world today than ever before. It works. So it's true and it works. So why is the Bay Area the most unchurched and the most de-churched region in all of the United States? if it is true and it works. Because it's true because it works and it works because it's true. So what's this disconnect? It is true that Jesus reconciled us to God through his death, resurrection, ascension. But if the person on the other side of that relationship doesn't want it or doesn't believe it, then it's not as simple as being truth. It's not as simple as it works. Now, for those of us who have kids, you love your kids. At least I hope you love your kids. I hope that's a truth in your life, that that's a truth. Now, if it's not a truth that you love your kids, then I'll bypass this and let's talk. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about your thing instead. But just because that's true... That doesn't mean that your child's love for you is automatically reciprocated. Even though it's true, and even though it's working, it doesn't mean that that'll happen, because it's a relationship. So it's not as simple as it's true and it works, therefore it is. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension works to reconcile us to God. It works. It's a truth. But just because it works and it's true doesn't mean that people want it or believe it or reciprocate the love. You love your child. Your, chi your children are being educated, clothed, fed, completely provided for, completely cared for, completely loved. The relationship works until it doesn't. So in Colossians, we find Paul who presents truth, who presents that it works, 
but it's still a church that has issues. And that in itself is really relevant for us today. So since this is our first study in Colossians, I, I do want to give you some background information before we just dive into those verses. Colossae is found in modern-day Turkey. You can actually go visit that site today. It's just not excavated. It's just a mound of dirt, but you can visit it. Uh, I've been there. It's um, a hill of dirt. So it's about 100 miles away from Ephesus. I bring up Ephesus because it was one of the most uh, developed cities of the time, and that is excavated. You can see it. You can go see the library there. You can see Mary's house. You can see all this kind of beautiful, awesome stuff, and you can see that there. Now, why bring up Ephesus, but then like look at Colossae? Because we could study the book of Ephesians, which is something I was weighing as well. Well, the reason why I bring up Ephesus and Colossae is that most likely the Colossians heard the gospel through Ephesus, because Ephesus is this huge port town, this huge trading town, and most likely they heard the gospel from here and then received it uh, from Ephesus. Turn, to me, turn with me to Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. This is Paul reasoning and persuading uh, about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. Paul spoke for years in the hall of Tyrannus. He was there uh, speaking to the residents of Asia, and they heard the word. So much of the gospel actually spread from Ephesus, where he spent the most time out of all the cities that he visited as a missionary. He spent the most time in Ephesus. Most believe that it was three years. All in chapter 19 uh, of Acts, and you can read it for yourselves. So from here, many lives were changed and, and the gospel spread to other parts of Asia and from people hearing from Paul, including the Colossian church. The church multiplied, the church um, grew, and, and the gospel spread, not just by the church in Ephesus growing, but because it had this far-reaching effect throughout the region that from other cities it kept going further out, which is something we're praying about in our ministry here, that we are far-reaching beyond just Oakland, that we would desire to reach the Bay Area because this is the most de-churched, unchurched region in the United States. So this is just something to keep in mind is that Paul wrote this letter from prison. Colossians chapter 4 is, will tell us this. Most biblical scholars believe that he wrote this letter from Rome, a Roman prison. So he preached in Ephesus, according to Acts chapter 19, which greatly affected the Colossian church. And then writing this letter, he's actually writing it now from Rome while he's in prison. And he's writing it to a church that he's never met personally. This Colossian church is not a church that he ever dealt with face to face. But we can see, we can read from his letter that he cared for this church a lot. Now, who was Paul? The testimony of who Paul was is really, really powerful. And so if you're looking for evidence of how God can transform a life, you, you can look at someone like Paul. Paul was a devout Jew who looked to imprison those who followed the way who followed Jesus, he, he feared God, he wanted to serve God, and he believed that he was doing the right thing when he stood watching Stephen being stoned to death. He thought that was the right thing. He goes on his way to Damascus, 
so that he can continue to imprison, interrogate, to beat, and condone the murder of Christians. But then God changes his life on the road to Damascus. So what does Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, share with us about Paul? Look in Acts chapter 26. And this is where Luke records for us Paul's testimony. I'm just going to pull out a few verses and not read the entire chapter just to give us a glimpse into Paul's testimony. Verse 4 of chapter 26. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. Verse 5. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest part of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Skip down to verse 9 through 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's Paul. That was Paul before he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so here we are now where Paul's in a Roman prison and he's writing this love letter to the Colossian church where just a few years before that he was imprisoning them, beating them, and condoning their death. This is a huge transformation. What's your transformation story? Not all of us have one as drastic as Paul's. Some of you do. But there is a transformation story from who you once were to who you are today. And that God is transforming you into becoming more into the likeness of Jesus. What is the testimony of Christ transforming your life? So what was the issue that was in Colossae? that Paul felt that he needed to address to write this letter to them while in prison. Well, there was this heretical false teaching that entered the church in Colossae, and it really shook the foundation of the church there, which means the church's effectiveness was, was greatly held back. Epaphras was the guy that was kind of the leader of this church in Colossae, and so Epaphras reports back to Paul what's happening, and he must have been so concerned, and he's like, Epaphras, I, I need you to deliver this letter because this is, this is really, really unhealthy for, for their faith. And so Paul addressed these concerns through this letter. These were people who were relatively established in the church, and the real issues weren't coming from outside of the church. The issues were actually coming from within the church. People within were getting more and more influence from the culture of their time, and they were allowing that to seep into the church and then live out from there. And so they allowed those outside influences when they were actually inside the church and then blossom from within, and it influenced the church from within in a negative manner. We can read all about this throughout church history as to how church movements, church denominations, churches have died or lost who they once were or who they were established to be. It happens all the time. It's happening today. I spoke earlier about how the church in North America and Europe, they've slowly slowed down or uh, significantly. And if we just look at why, 
Why is the church in Europe and North America slowing down significantly compared to other parts of the world? It isn't because of outside influences. It's from within. It's from within churches and then churches from within being divided. It's not coming from the outside. Churches sometimes fear like, oh, those things out there. But it's actually inside. People from within have divided the church. It's not people from outside. The leadership within the Colossian church was Christian, but it seemed to be more influenced by the spirit of the world more than the spirit of God. Again, we can look at church history to show just the demise of the church. And you look at the Hellenization of Christianity. You can look at the Roman influence in Christianity when Constantine Christianized the Roman Empire. You can look at church history. It'll show us how it happened. See, there, there is something, even though it's so, so difficult, there is something beautiful about persecution. Why does the church thrive in persecuted areas? I think this is the reason why. Because it keeps following Jesus really pure. If you fear for your life because of what you believe, these other secondary, tertiary things that the church fights about don't exist. They don't exist. You just want to spread Jesus. You don't care about politics. You don't care about those things. It's not to say Christians shouldn't because beautiful things have happened with Christians within civil rights movements and things like that. But there is something to be said when it's easy to be a Christian. It's also easy to be deluded to the point that there's no difference between following Jesus or following something else. So Paul attempted to set the church in Colossae on the right path from destroying itself. And he could do that because it was more pure. Because he was persecuted. He was locked up in Rome. All over the Christian world, it wasn't, very, it wasn't just easily accepted. Now, Paul doesn't come straight out and say what the problem exactly was, but, but here is a key word to look at when we're looking at Colossians. It's this word, fullness. Chapter 1, verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Chapter 2, verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So, there seemed to be a belief in the Colossian church that they weren't Full. They weren't whole, that there was something missing. Again, the persecution of the church makes it pure. It, it allows people to see the wholeness, the fullness. You don't look beyond. And they were being told that they were missing something, that something else was needed for them to be complete, that Jesus wasn't enough. And so Paul contended with this philosophy within their context of their culture. He contended with this doctrinal confusion. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In Paul's contention against incorrect doctrine, he addressed their, their moral living in chapter 3, which prevented them from experiencing fullness and from experiencing freedom. Freedom is a huge theme in Colossians. We'll, we'll be looking at this in chapters 1 and 2. 
something about doctrinal confusion is that it always, it always leads to moral carelessness. Always. And the same goes the other way in that the moral carelessness always leads to doctrinal confusion. It always does. They always seem to go hand in hand. But what is more common, especially in our context, is that moral behavior shapes doctrine. We allow that. And we see this all the time in cultures where doctrine has been held for thousands of years. We, held the, we hold this orthodoxy for thousands of years, just watching it be reshaped by the morality, where the morality changes the doctrine to justify how people want to live. So rather than people changing to align with God, there's an attempt to have doctrine align with this new morality. So rather than following the word of God and repenting and turning from what is contrary to God, we want God to fit who we are. So if we dictate who God is to be, is God really worthy to be followed? Yet God is worthy to be followed. Therefore, we can't dictate who he is. God is who he is. He sets forth doctrine. And we are invited to live in that fullness and that freedom rather than experiencing incomplete life, a life of bondage. Let's jump into our verses this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So Paul begins acknowledging the Colossians' faithfulness. He greets them with grace, peace, thankfulness. He's not, he's not trying to butter these guys up, right? He's not, he's not just like, okay, I'm not going to stick them later. He's just being real. This is really how he feels. He's not being overly optimistic. He's not overly pessimistic. Paul actually rejects this optimism that's just born out of superficiality. He's not into that sort of stuff. He rejects this pessimism that is preoccupied with just being negative. He's just a realist. He's, he's being realistic, and he deals with the truth here. To, to be encouraging where appropriate, to extend grace and peace, to always be thankful to God. And so Paul's thanksgiving is constant. We read this in his letters. He's always thankful to God, and we're encouraged to be always thankful to God. We, as people of influence, we can't go to this superficial optimism. We can't be engrossed with pessimism. We can't avoid what's in front of us. And we find that Paul doesn't major in the minors. He embraces fellowship at Colossae, and he's thankful for them. He's convinced of God's grace, and he deals with reality. And he wasn't in denial of it. He's realistic, but he's not overly optimistic. He's not overly pessimistic. And you notice that Paul's personal faithfulness, thankfulness, prayerfulness are really evident. And that these are also expressed in community because he says we, when we pray for you. Our personal relationship with God is as intimate as is our relationship to God as a community. Verse 4, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have all for all the saints, Paul wrote to them whom he did not meet. He just heard of them. 
He'd never met with them face to face. Verse 3 shows us a relationship with God. Verse 4 shows us a, a loving relationship with others. That faith and love need to go together. We, we have this with God and we have this toward one another. They were a church who loved all brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of political leaning, regardless of socioeconomic standing, regardless of race, to embrace diversity. Now, when we think of diversity, we tend to think of racial diversity. That's what we tend to think of. So when you look at the landscape of our church, that's what people tend to think. Like, oh, we're underrepresented here, we're underrepresented here. I agree. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. But is that the only diversity that we want? One of the values that our church has is a thriving diversity. That's something that we desire. I'm not saying we're there, but it's something that we do desire. And I want to I push a little bit beyond race, beyond ethnicity, because I want to push towards the diversity that is really, really hard for a lot of people to embrace in our context of ministry. I, I, I do feel we lack in terms of race, racial diversity, but I have a hard time finding if I pulled somebody from the audience to say, do you want that? That they would say no. I think we're all in agreement, right? We're all in agreement. What I want to kind of challenge us in is how about the ones we're not in agreement with? That's the, the diversity. When we're looking at the least of these, that's, what I, that's kind of where I want to push us because I think there are a, a very good number of people in here who ha- would have a much, much more difficult time embracing someone who fully embraces Donald Trump. You want to talk about diversity. It's not about race, because I can pull anybody up here and everyone will be like, yeah. But if I can pull anyone up here and say like, okay, I want you to fully embrace the Trump supporter, you'd be like, oh my Lord, like, are you kidding me? And I think I can pull a lot of you and you'll have a really difficult problem with that. See, diversity is more than just the optical stuff. I bring this up because a thriving diversity is a value of our church, which includes race, absolutely. I would love to continue on that path and to grow in that. But it really is to be able to be inclusive of people, all people, who think differently, who have different beliefs, who have different political leanings, to include poor and rich, to include all saints, brothers and sisters in Christ. Yet there are some who extend love to others and the same love is not extended to a brother or sister in Christ. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of the truth, the gospel. Hope, hope. Not the hope that comes from themselves. The Christian hope laid up in heaven is foundational to our love and faith. There's, there's a hope that awaits us. It's, it's an assurance, not just this vague desire that's out there. There's this expectancy for us that's, that's waiting for us. Our hope is sure and it is certain. It is given to us by God. Hope for us rests in this unchanging character of God. And whenever we waver in hope, we need to go to the word of truth, the gospel, 
to redirect us toward the hope of God. God is keeping hope for us. The hope stems from the word of truth. And that came from Epaphras. Not that Epaphras was someone like that was extremely special. It was simply the truth of the word of God and he had the faith to share it. Verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. The word of God was going throughout the world, but the gospel was touching individuals. And it was someone like Epaphras who brought the good news to the individuals in Colossae. The word of God bears fruit and it changes lives wherever it goes. It was something they heard and they understood. It was the gospel proclaimed. It has the power to bear fruit even when you and I aren't the most gifted of messengers. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Paul multiplied the church. We read that in Acts chapter 19. Epaphras was probably the product of this. Paul probably didn't even know that Epaphras was even going to come to faith in Jesus when he was initially sharing this, let alone multiply the church in Colossae. And that's something for all of us to keep in mind is that we don't know who God is going to use to do amazing things for his kingdom. So when you serve in children's ministry or youth ministry, that person you're serving in your small group, that person you're serving when you go out to the homeless encampment, we just don't know who we're serving and what's going to turn out with them. But how beautiful and wonderful when they become a beloved fellow servant of Christ. Epaphras was instrumental in establishing several churches, at least three of them that we do know of. He was a faithful teacher, minister, who did what Paul did for him. And Epaphras was really valued by Paul. Epaphras taught them about God's grace, taught them about God's truth. We just don't know who we're going to minister to and what they're going to do. Here's the thing, we don't have to be perfect or the best to make a difference in someone's life. You don't have to be good. You just need to be faithful in doing the work. It's the same thing for the church. We don't have to be perfect to make a difference for Oakland. Thank God, because we could have just ruled ourselves out already, right? Like, but we do need to be a faithful church, to be in Christ, to be a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are to be in Christ, a new creation. Even though we live here in the Bay Area, our identity is in Christ. We are a new creation. And this was something the Colossians struggled with. Some of them were in Christ, therefore new creations, but others who thought they were in Christ really weren't. They were still in their old selves. They weren't transformed into new creations. They, they kept to their old ways, their old Colossian ways. And so for those of us who profess to be in Christ, are we indeed new creations? Does Jesus influence us more than the world influence us? Or, or does the world, the old way, influence us more? Let me end with verse 8. And has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The hallmark of the life of the church is love in the Spirit. Great thing to be known for. Not everyone will recognize this because not everyone is in the Spirit, but what a wonderful thing to be known for as a church. It's something for us to work toward. It's something that we are to pray for.
Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that uh, we have you to depend on, to lean on. We are so imperfect in how we think and how we reason and the things that we do. And yet you're our redeemer. You're so gracious to correct our wrongdoings and to course correct us. And I just pray, God, that we would remain humble, that we would remain teachable to, to hear from you. I pray, God, that we would be able to learn from people around us. God, thank you for your word, and I pray for your blessing upon this study of Colossians in Jesus' name. Amen.